Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a brand new channel here on the New Books Network. My name is Tom Schult from the University of British Columbia. I'm your host. And first and foremost, I'd like to offer a big thank you to Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, for this fantastic opportunity to continue to promote, develop, and enliven the contemporary fields of systems and cybernetics. A great big thank you to Marshall for all the work he does um, keeping this incredible uh, academic community alive and th- through which I've benefited tremendously as a listener for a very long time. And I'm so uh, gratified and grateful to have a chance to be, uh, to be a host here. It's no secret that we continue to live in the midst of a digital revolution that continues to unfold in a rapidly accelerating fashion. Digital connectivity and the Internet of Things make possible not only smart homes, but smart cities. As with all technological revolutions, the road ahead is equally dotted with possibilities and potential pitfalls. Liz C. Werner and her colleagues at the Technical University of Berlin brought together a collection of thinkers and practitioners in the realms of architecture, design, and urban planning to wrestle with questions around ways we might utilize today's digital design tools to enable more responsive, resilient, and ultimately inclusive and democratic forms of urban design and governance without tipping the balance over to a technocratic project that might imprison us within its algorithmic logics. All of the contributors to this discussion share the hope that the insights of second-order cybernetics might provide valuable guidance as we attempt to find that particular sweet spot of human-machine interaction. Their insights are gathered together in Cybernetics State of the Art, edited by our guest, Lissy Werner, and available free online from the Technical University of Berlin. As editor, Werner has skillfully crafted a dialectic arc that allows the productive tensions between digital utopianism and skepticism that enable a provocative investigation of the revolution that is happening, whether we like it or not, and might help us find the means to steer its emergence in ways that are most beneficial for all of us and our environment. A little bit about our guest, uh, Liz C. Werner is Principal of Tactile Architecture Office for Systems Architecture. She is assistant professor at Technical University Berlin for computational architecture and sustainable urban design. Her research is driven by cybernetic principles and engages with architecture and digital theory. Between 2003 and 2016, Werner acted as design studio master and lecturer at the universities of Nottingham and Dessau, as a guest professor at Carnegie Mellon and Taylor's University, Malaysia. And she's lectured internationally and acted as a critic at such institutions as MIT, USC, Bauhaus University Weimar, Cooper Union, and Technical University of Darmstadt. And her uh, design office, Tactile Architecture, actually received a German Enterprise Award for Best Modern Urban Architecture and Design Office in 2017. So in addition to being a uh, an accomplished academic, Dr. Werner is also a uh, established and well-recognized practitioner. And so, without any further ado, let's turn to the interview. 
And let's say hello to our guest here on our first ever uh, edition of New Books and Systems and Cybernetics. I am very pleased to have with us uh, Professor Liz C. Werner from the Technical University of Berlin. Hello, Liz. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. I'm very happy to be talking to you about this exciting uh, new book. So since we are a channel on the New Books Network, uh, we'll begin with the traditional um, opening question across the channel, which is, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your academic background, uh, maybe your trajectory through uh, academia and otherwise, and how you came to uh, an engagement with cybernetics? Right. Yeah. Thank you, Tom, for that question. And thanks for having me. Um, it's it's a real honor to, to do this sort of, um, not just internet, but also uh, intercontinental uh, knowledge transfer, which I think is is very much along the lines of cybernetics. Now, um, I'm I'm an architect by trade. Uh, I actually started as a as a draftsman in in Germany in Hamburg, uh, and then went to to the UK to University of Westminster and uh, also Australia, the Bartlett, um, uh, sorry Australia. RMIT and then back to, to London to the Bartlett to, to study architecture and do my diploma and my master's. The issue of cybernetics, I think I came across that even before I knew that I came across that. Um, is I was interested in the interaction between humans. I was interested in interdependency between architecture and biology. Um, I wanted to know how things relate to each other as living things and non-living things. Um, and in about 2001, I remember, um, I came across Gordon Pask, who um, I suppose you're familiar with. Yeah, Gordon Pask. Um, as yeah, we will speak about him and his work um, over the course of the interview. Um, he was a cybernetician. He was not an architect, but um, he spoke about um, interaction and he designed um, machines. I would say um, which, which related the human to the machine, uh, and it was all driven by by something that in cybernetics we call conversation. Um, a professor in the Bartlett, uh, he was one of his students, and I didn't know that at that time, and I went up to him. His name was uh, Ranulf Glanville, who then actually became my, my mentor, I would say. And I said, being a diploma student, I said, Ranulf, I'm interested in architecture and cybernetics, without knowing what it actually means, of course. And he said, whoa. I thought I'm the only one. So here it was me um, thinking I'm the only person interested in architecture and cybernetics. Uh, and then there was Ranulf, who immediately, um, well, got me into his sort of uh, aura of, of just being there. Uh, and that's that's how it all started in terms of cybernetics and architecture. That's actually this is the second part because the first part started when I think I remember my mom gave me a book when I was about 19 or 20, which was by Margaret Mead. Uh, and the cyberneticians um, within the, the crowd here uh, may know Margaret Mead from um, her amazing work on anthropology and cybernetics. Um, so it all started actually within the family uh, and then well, flourished in the last, let's say, 15 to, to 17 years. 
That's fantastic. And uh, you're all very lucky that to have a parents that give you a Margaret Mead book uh, as a gift. That's uh, that's a good environment to grow up in, I would guess. Um, and you're, uh, the, the phrase, I thought I was the only one, is one that listeners will hear throughout the, uh, the many episodes of this podcast to come, because that is usually the first phrase out of a cybernetician's mouth when they meet another one. And I'm, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that this, um, this podcast will do much to continue to link people like you and I and, and many others that we know uh, who are floating around thinking they're the only ones uh, and all the different intersections between cyber cybernetics and other disciplines, as you, as you may know, and uh, listeners will get to know over the coming months, my entry to cybernetics is through cybernetics and theater. So um, it, it's its uh, ability to speak in and with and uh, around and inside so many uh, discipline, traditional disciplines is, is sort of endless. So when we find each other, we definitely sort of light up and find ways to talk uh, like we're doing now. Um, so the book we're talking about, is called uh, Cybernetic State of the Art, which is a perfect title for our our, uh, our uh, inaugural podcast. So we might as well dive in. It's also the first part of a uh, our first volume of a series that you are publishing online through the Technical University of Berlin. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the genesis of the book and the series and the book's place in the series? And I, I believe you've already got a second volume that's uh, being put together. But so any background about how this, uh, this series and this particular volume uh, came to be? Um, yeah, this is, this is wonderful to talk about the book, first of all, and um, the infrastructure around it. And of course, you are right, uh, there is a second one um, that, that I'm planning, and um, there's also a third one that I'm planning, but you know how these things are. Um, this, will, I would say, is kind of maybe part three or four in my cybernetic journey uh, throughout the last um, two decades. And it came about uh, when I, well, I am working, I am part of the Technical University uh, as an assistant professor in the Institute of Architecture. Uh, I'm working together with Raoul Bunschoten. Um, Raoul Bunschoten, uh, he was a um, lecturer for architecture, a studio master at the Architectural Association for about 15 years, I believe, in, in the 80s and 90s. And he worked together with Gordon Pask. You see, we are coming back to, to Gordon Pask all the time. Um, I started uh, in his chair for sustainable urban planning and design in 2015, and we realized that there is a lot of crossovers um, and, and a lot of things that we would like to, to collect and gather in a conference or in a book series or something like this um, to review and to preview cybernetics in the frame of architecture, in the frame of urban design and planning, uh, within the influence of robotics, big data, um, the question if we take decisions or if we are taking decisions together with machines or artificial intelligences. Um, So there was a lot to talk about and and we started thinking about a conference which was actually called Cybernetic State of the Art uh, last June, as in uh, 2016, June 2016. Um, that was cybernetic state of the art. And then we said, well, this is so exciting. We have to carry on. And the the, the book series, Conversations, um, engages not just with cybernetics as a very specific subject discipline 
or uh, even science, um, but it deals with um, communication, exchange, um, conversation, and, and, and learning. It deals with complex systems and how we can sort of take them apart. So then we decided to do this, this book series, and Raoul Bunschoten and myself, we are um, co-editing the series, uh, and um, I started with the first volume, uh, which I added uh, as a, a bit as a result of, of the conference that we did in 2016, um, which is the first volume. And this first volume should sort of give us a kickstart in a few directions to, to remind ourselves what cybernetics and architecture can be. I have to say that these 200-something uh, pages that we have here in the first volume, of course, is not enough. It's, it's a very, very, very small fraction of what could be said um, and, and discussed. Um, so, yeah, this is our starting point from, from which uh, we go. Well, it's incredibly exciting uh, that you've uh, you're you're one of the rare people who, at this point, has uh, an institutional framework in which you can explore these questions, which is obviously tremendously exciting. I would imagine not just for you, but for the rest of us, that uh, this is uh, cybernetics is not something you're being asked to sort of do off the side of your desk. It's something that's embedded in something that clearly your department and, uh, by extension, your institution is is engaged in. So that's very exciting for all of us, I think. Um, so clearly you've mentioned a couple things. This book is at the intersection as cybernetics often is, uh, between the living and non-living systems and how they, uh, interact with, with each other and, uh, conversations of learning, etc. Um, so, um, the book is, talks a lot about smart cities, talks about the internet of things, um, uh, ways through which uh, technology, digi digital technology can be involved in design and architecture, city planning, etc. Uh, issues that have been interwoven with cybernetics uh, for a long, long time. Um, and against the backdrop, or what, I, what seems to me to provide the backdrop for this whole enterprise, at least for me as a reader, and the way these various chapters uh, speak to each other, is Project Cybersyn from the early 1970s in uh, Chile, when uh, Stafford Beer um, went and worked for the uh, government of Salvador Allende and created a kind of a cyber, the first large-scale cybernetic uh, governance system, for for lack of a better term, and of course we're very fortunate to have a chapter in the book uh, by Raúl Espejo, who was uh, one of the key people working. Um, on that project, and there is a sense of sort of cybersyn diaspora that still um, works throughout uh, the cybernetics community around the world. Um, so it's a hugely ambitious project, and without too much detail, and there's lots of literature that we can point listeners to. Um, can you say a little bit about Project Cybersyn, what it was, and and how it provides a kind of backdrop for a lot of the questions? That yeah, sure. Thank you for with. the question. Um, cyber sin uh, and also cyber folk, which is kind of part of it, um, as you're saying correctly, it, it is a backdrop for um, for the discussion or the debate on 
what cybernetics can do in, in society, what cybernetics can do for urban design and planning, uh, how it is connected to participative um, procedures um, on all sorts of levels, not just um, the, the urban or um, the, the country or nationwide level, uh, but also local levels and, and, and small scale, um, let's say, human social systems, um, since we also have social systems in, in other um, uh, organizations such as ants or uh, bees or fish or something like this. Um, Cybersyn uh, was a project that came about uh, end of the 60s, beginning of the 1970s uh, in Chile, as, you, as you're rightly saying. And it was based on a systemic understanding of um, trying to combine local um, local agreements or, or local uh, happiness in systems with um, with global ones. The global ones here would be a production of. Um, of things needed in a country, uh, like, like food, for instance. And a CyberSyn with the operations room was let out in a way that um, along Chile, which we all know is a very long country, um, there was a system of, uh, you may believe it or not, fax machines that had been uh, wired up since uh, the internet did not exist at that stage and um, the, the predecessor, the ARPANET, was um, actually only meant for university institutions and the army and there's there's a lot of literature on, on the history and the differences between internet, ARPANET and so on. And Cybersyn was trying to understand um, how do things relate to each other? So in Chile, in, in Santiago de Chile, um, there was the operations room, uh, which was um, physically, uh, as, as a piece of design, uh, very carefully done by, um, let me just remember, by Guy Bansiepe. That's right. Um, as far as I remember, there is also a photograph in, in the book uh, somewhere of the operations room and <laughs> we all may re see that it has a, a little bit in common with um, Enterprise, uh, Starship Enterprise. Um, so um, that's, that's quite intriguing in a way. Now, um, Cybersyn had this one operations room, which is basically the brain, uh, where all the information today, we would possibly say big data, uh, collection came together. All the information of production systems in, in the country, uh, of performance of machines and, and factories and so on, <coughs> logistics, ETC, and, and, and all this data came together into the operations room where we had a few decision makers who would then um, react. So what was happening is that there were regulations uh, and um, these regulations um, help the systems to work, the production systems, uh, data came back, uh, what the performance is like, and on based on that feedback, um, the next iteration of decisions would be would be taken. So we were working with, well, in that case, a closed cybernetic um, system. Um, where production, economy, ecology, um, demographics, um, 
came together in one in one amazing room. And the idea was to have real time information from the factories uh, rather than having like reports once a year or, or twice a year. Now, the, the, the overriding or the driving issue for Project Cybersyn was to to be more democratic, um, to understand the country and all its agents as one organism that has to work together. Um, I mean, Raúl Espejo, he says the emphasis um, of Cybersyn anticipated a cybernetic argument uh, that its time had to come. And today with technological, methodological and epistemological developments, this time is closer. Um, so in that sense, social complexity nowadays uh, would be a bit of a parallel to what the utopian project of Cybersyn was aiming to do. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to think of, imagine Stafford Beer today, you know, or Stafford Beer at your conference, for instance, with the kind of uh, technological capacities we have now. It's an incredible story. And uh, I would encourage listeners to read Stafford Beer's book, uh, Brain of the Firm. Uh, the, the later edition uh, has a, gr- a great detail uh, of the implementation of Cybersyn. And then Eden Medina's excellent book from a couple of years ago, Cybernetic Revolutionaries, where you can get, so you get an account from the inside and then a kind of um, sympathy but still a critique from Eden Medina's book. Uh, it's an incredible story. And the fact that they pulled this off, not just that what, with what was available in the 70s, but with even less because of technology embargoes, etc., as uh, governments hostile to the socialist uh, Allende project were, were choking off as much as they could. So that what he patched together with his team, including uh, Dr. Espeo, is truly remarkable. Absolutely. I mean, um, I think, first of all, thinking about uh, or having the desire to manage social and economic complexity and then using technology, which in a way didn't even exist um, in a political environment that did not necessarily nourish this attitude, uh, was very brave. And, I mean, it lasted for like three or four years. This ops room was destroyed. Um, in fact, uh, we do have uh, very, very good information and writings uh, about how this happened and how it was destroyed um, by Guy Bonsieppe. Um, so, so what was a utopia, in fact, was a political, um, I would say, a political reality. And within the the text that we see here from uh, from Raúl Espejo, uh, Raúl talks a lot about the viable system model, uh, which has five systems, and, and it has a complex relationship from one system to another. But interestingly, this viable system model is still being used, uh, or actually it is actively being used in, in management of all sorts. Um, hence, we have already a relationship between um, architecture, uh, regional management or actually national management, policy making uh, and, and technology, which is very state of the art, I would say. 
Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's sort of the time is the time came, the time has come and it's very much alive in, in your book. So let's, uh, let's dive forward into these. Uh, we've talked a bit about the backdrop of it. Um, so, um, uh, so your your particular chapter uh, introduces uh, the term cybernetification. Um, can you outline what this idea is for us? And I, I'll, clearly, it's something engaging with some of the same questions. And also, you mentioned the utopian nature of the CyberSyn uh, project. There is also, of course, some tensions in there and the and critiques and debates around um, democracy versus centralization, et cetera, which will also play out across some of the chapters we'll talk about, but I just want to sort of mark that for listeners and maybe, maybe that will surface for us, you know, right now as we get into this question, but let's talk about your, your notion of cybernetification. Yeah. Cybernetification. Um, it's as the term sort of, well, it's not a noun. It's actually a verb. It's a bit like architecture. Um, cybernetification, the way I define it uh, has to do with with the change or the increasing connectedness and uh, interdependency between um, agents, uh, between, well, objects and between bits of information. Uh, when I talk about bits of information, of course, um, I'm, well, not of course, but I'm talking about immaterial stuff. Um, when I talk about cybernetification or the process of cybernetification, um, I'm trying to, to, to construct um, an organization between atom-based objects that carry information and bit-based, well, bits that also carry information. So... I'm working on on a construct that works with, well, let's call it the real stuff, the physical analog stuff, and the digital. Um, I would say this is something that we are working on globally uh, in what is called the, the technosphere, uh, a term that has been flown about, um, well, at least Germany for quite a while. And I think it's, it's also in the United States where uh, the technosphere is quite apparent. Uh, of course, the Anthropocene. Uh, and another thing that is part of the cybernetification um, that I'm propagating is uh, net graft net graft with a G rather than a C. Um, it relates to, to, to grafting, uh, like the art of, uh, of, of grafting plants, um, for instance. So the cybernetification is a process that deals with the transition from purely material, atom-based material, to a conversation between atoms and bits. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So, um, and when you say information, are you using a kind of Shannon model of information? Or what would your sort of working definition be of, inf the, of information as it's carried by both these atom-based and bit-based uh, 
or uh, systems? Well, I think Shannon is is absolutely important to as a starting point. Um, but the the Shannon model, um, of course, is a model of um, first order cybernetics, uh, where there's an input and and a process, and we also have this issue of of noise. Um, and then there is an output and in the ideal case scenario, somebody who can decipher the information that goes from input to, to, to the other, uh, the other part towards the output. But the Shannon model um, does not account for feedback. Uh, it also does not account for, um, for, for things having a goal. So I'm, working with um, a model that started with, with Gordon Pask's model, uh, conversation theory, uh, which was then um, moved forward uh, by many cyberneticians, but I think uh, the one who, who actually manifested it um, for many disciplines to understand is, is Paul Pangaro. Um, and we're talking about goal-driven systems. So when I talk about cybernetification that combines or um, creates a conversation between atom-based information and bit-based information. I'm actually talking about something where these two things come together and give feedback to each other, but also can work by themselves. So the Shannon model has an input, a process, and an output. Um, the model of second-order cybernetics uh, has uh, has feedback, um, and it feeds back into into the input. Let's say that as a, as an iteration. Norbert Wiener was. Um, talking about feedback, um, which could be on one hand a reflex, but it could also be something where uh, one can learn from. Um, this is one part of it. And the other one um, has to do with, uh, well, with variety, um, which means that an organism in different situations can have the ability to react differently. And this takes us directly to, I would say, uh, maybe an opportunity to talk about uh, trivial machines versus non-trivial machines, uh, initially um, identified by Hans von Forster, but I think is important to what you're talking about here as well and why the Shannon model is uh, is insufficient uh, on its own. So um, could you give the listeners just a, a brief idea about this distinction between trivial machines and non-trivial machines? Well, the trivial machine... Um um, is is something like let's say um, I think the thermostat is a trivial machine where basically you do have a, a sensor uh, and you do have um, a, a heating system and you also have an environment and the sensor is regulated or actually the heating system is regulated by the sensor which feels the temperature and the sensor then uh, speaks to the heating system and says turn on. Uh, as soon as the sensor realizes that the environment, uh, that the air uh, is warm enough, it would talk to the heating system again and say, um, turn off. So we do have a closed loop system where, where nothing changes 
uh, unless there is, of course, uh, some kind of uh, perturbation or disturbance um, that would would change the program. Uh, but at that moment in time, nothing uh, changes the system. So there would be a control of the heating system through um, one piece of information without having any um, relationship to to the exterior or to the world outside of, of its boundaries. Um, we could say that there's in a way a feedback because the sensor would actually get information from the temperature in the room, but there's no feedback that would allow the system to learn or change. And the non-trivial... The non-trivial machine, in fact, is the the, the, the development further. Um, the non-trivial machine is is something where you have um, an organization that um, wants to achieve a goal, and it may be able to to adjust, and it may be able to also collect experience in order to to develop further. And so that the state that the or, organism is in, or that sorry, the system is in, is going to dictate uh, so, to some degree is going to influence the output. So that's not just the simple input output, but there's input meets the state of the. That's right. Is that is that correct? That's right. So if we are, let's say, if you look at the Ford model of um, of production systems, car factories, um, you would have an information, this is how you put a car together, uh, and on the other side, there would be a car coming out of it. And that would happen over and over and over again. But of course, in a car factory, and, and we did have the case, uh, in fact, um, there's the question of... Um, uh, how does the worker put the car together? Um, what is the influence of, of this particular operation to the human body? Uh, what is the influence of, um, of, of the performance of the car to the next iteration of the design? Uh, what is the interdependency between the material used to, to the environment as in sustainability? Um, so these things are not considered in in a, in a trivial machine or also in a let's call it first order cybernetics because I think this is two things that or one thing that needs to be mentioned um, that there is a first order cybernetics and and a second order whereas in the first order um, one would observe a system and look what it does uh, a bit like the hard sciences look at their specimens and, and their projects, uh, like biology, mathematics, uh, physics, and so on. Um, a second-order cybernetics would, in, would include the, the person that observes into the system. So as soon as you figure out something in the system you look at, and you realize, aha, uh -huh, things are going differently than I was thinking, you would change and steer and react and adapt. And you would learn. 
And of course, in your Ford example, then there's labor relations, there's interpersonal dynamics and all those really non-trivial things that are at the heart of this grafting that you're talking about as well, where we've got information systems and data and we've got people, perhaps the most non-trivial machine uh, that that we uh, engage with every day, which uh, are, of course, notoriously difficult to, to predict as the social sciences have grappled with for, for so long. Um, that's great. Thank you. So, so uh, a, a phrase that leaps out from one of the chapters um, in the book from from Tim Jackna is uh, he says we need to design uh, learning processes rather than master plans. And I'm responding to what you've been saying about about learning and about conversation between these different systems that are grafted together, so that it's not input output. There is goal, but there is learning. There is recursion, and uh, all of these things that cyberneticians. Um, uh, deal with and try and draw our attention to. Um, so I, I just wanted to throw that. That's one of my favorite quotes in the book that um, that resonates with what you were just talking about. Um, you declare uh, in your chapter that architecture is globally at a time of crisis in that we are not sure how to define architecture. And we certainly were not sure about what the practice of architecture actually does or how to educate our architecture students contemporary and in future. Uh, can you describe this crisis that you're mentioning a little bit and and some of its potential ramifications if we if we don't find a way to to find our way through these questions? Well, I think I'm I'm only one of many who um, are currently sort of a little bit struggling with uh, what architecture is and as as an educator and I've been doing that for about well. 14 years or so, um, I'm of course very interested in what um, what our future architects are doing and, and how I can or how we as architectural educators uh, can design our curricula and can equip our students um, with knowledge on one hand, uh, skills on the other, but also a certain uh, sensitivity towards what they are actually doing. Um, now, what I realize is, uh, what I've been realizing for a while, is that in many cases, um, architects, first of all, have have a huge issue with um, with policies, with regulations, um, with all the rules that we have to well obey in in a way to to build something. Um, it starts with energy saving. Uh, that results in, well, buildings that have hardly windows, uh, since walls are better insulators. Um, and it also, in terms of fire regulations, results in rather small spaces. Uh, and there's no celebration of the staircase anymore. Let's say that takes just this as an example. Um, the staircase is um, a, a connector uh, between uh, two vertical spaces, and once it's open, uh, I can see what's going on. Uh, I can feel that there is a horizontal and, and a vertical movement. So the other thing is that um, we have to, well, one thing is that we have to obey a lot of rules and regulations. Um, the other thing is that it is very hard um, legally to, to become an architect and to run an office and, in fact, also to make enough money to survive. 
Um, so this is this is one issue which is like the the, the general, uh, let's say, um, external component. Um, internally, if you think about it, I mean, like twenty years ago, I think it's about twenty years ago when I started as, as a draftsman. Um, we started with rapidographs. Rapidographs are basically ink pens uh, and, and pencils. Um, computers didn't exist, in fact, in offices. We just started to have computers. We did blueprints. I mean, the, my first job was to actually be in a basement and do blueprints, um, like proper copies of A-zeros. Now, 20 years later, our language has, or our notation system, let's say that, is moving from lines to code. So from drawing lines to writing code. This is a development which is there. We are also working with digital craftsmanship. We are programming robots. Um, we are looking into, into textures um, and, and tectonics and those things of buildings, but we have not implemented that within the architectural education. Um, we do receive students in the master courses um, that are not aware of, um, of 3D modeling software. And this is alarming. Um, if you look at the car industry, they have moved much, much quicker. If you look at the building industry, we are putting a brick on top of another. So um, I don't have anything against bricks. I think they're absolutely beautiful. I mean, you know, environmentally friendly, they store the energy, they have a beautiful feel, um, absolutely wonderful material. But how do we deal with these materials? Another thing is, is systemic understanding. Um, a while ago, um, I, I said, well, the architect is not a designer of objects. Uh, the architect is a designer of systems and complex relationships. But if you look at first, second, third, fourth, and fifth year final presentations, in many cases, you see an object on an A0. And you ask about the relationship of this object, this building, within its social, demographic, urban, tectonic, climatic context, and usually there may be an answer, but the answer in many cases may not have been a, a primary driver for the design proposition. So we are at the moment in 2017 in fact, suggesting, when I say we, it's these architects who deal with the digital stuff, um, we suggest that we are even beyond a second digital turn. And I see students in master courses who don't even know how to 3D model it with a computer. So this is where, where I think we are in a crisis because we are not moving fast enough. We are, I have a big problem trying to, to teach the students or actually to, to excite the students to work with microprocessors, to work with things that, you know, kinetic architectures and so on, which is super exciting stuff um, because the condition is still a square box, which could be beautiful, though. 
So if I'm hearing you right, it's there's there's a well there's many dimensions, but I'm hearing two sort of uh, strands here. One is 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 uh, when I say simply, I don't mean simply, but I mean is is the idea of the execution, the the ability to execute uh, and and not fall behind in terms of uh, processes that the, the digitized world uh, enables. And you mentioned building being far behind uh, other fields of design, but that there's also the and what I think is at the center of this book are the social, ethical implications of not of of understanding this distinction you make between designing systems with complex components and multi-layered relationships versus designing discrete objects and matter and that it's that networked and ultimately social uh, embeddedness of design with all of its ethical implications. So it's not just, hey, we need to use computers because computers are cool and they're fast and whatever. It's that they're going to enable Ironically, people sometimes see technology, and this is again getting back to things that are at the core of debates, ongoing debates about cyber sin. People fear technology as something that's going to imprison us in a kind of algorithmic deterministic reality. When in fact, uh, I sense what you and 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 like-minded colleagues are about trying to y- y- use the potential for the flows that these can create to understand these social networks and try and steer them, which is ultimately, of course, what cybernetics is, uh, in, in a in a in a more democratic and, and healthy manner. Is that is that true? Well, I don't know if it's true since I'm not a big believer in reality uh, or, or truth. Okay, right. Yeah. Um, I would <laughs> like to refer to, to Heinz von Furster here. Um, but um, I, I think it's definitely true what you're saying in terms of, of how, how I'm thinking. Yeah, that's, that's what um, I mean. I, I, yes, I use the word true. Yeah. <laughs> Am I correctly understanding you? I, as a second order cybernetician, I'm well aware I need to be more careful with my use of that T word. I know it's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? When cyberinstitutions talk to each other, it's just—it's just so much fun. Um, so uh, let me get back to this beautiful red thread. Um, absolutely, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, so we do. I don't think we have a problem, and I don't think it's incredibly beautiful to have technology. But the first question, and this is something that Gilbert Simondon um, was engaging with um, in in the mode of existence in technical objects, which apparently was written in '58. Um, in, in French, it was then translated uh, in English in 1980. And the first question is what is technology or what is nature because the the fear that you know technology would take over that has always been something within the human existence but if you're saying well there's not a difference between the technology of you know the thing in a computer and nature or what we're doing when you say well this is actually part of us this is part of humankind and this is part of our natural evolution i think then things become a lot more simple so um when when we talk about um this systemic understanding or um, the the social technical ecology through the lens of 
technology is nature, is culture, and so on, um, we could work with, with understanding where we are going much, much, much easier. So that also would mean in terms of architecture and architectural education um, or architectural uh, production. Well, education, it could mean being able to change curricula quicker. In terms of architectural production, it could mean, well, let's try uh, industrial production modular components. Uh, let's see if we can get feedback from the people who use the buildings into the design process for the next iteration. And then, of course, what rears its head always is power and politics. Um, and that the, the, these these processes and this kind of net grafting and, you know, you go back to cyber sin, et cetera, they always take place inside a particular political uh, climate or political uh, environment. Um, and so there's that pull between uh, the, the, the more utopian sense of the kind of uh, participatory um egalitarian uh, emergent kind of government governance that comes rises up from the people in these recursive sort of levels and then the idea though that you know cybersyn eventually there's that ops room and that we're each of these systems at some point as i understand them are going to agree on a certain set of indicators that are going to uh, guide we're going to use as the key feedback, even the decision of which indicators are the ones we need to pay attention to. Um, so uh, I know this is the, you know, this is what we're going to spend the rest of our lives grappling with, but can you tell me a little bit about your own sense of that struggle between um, the kinds of liberating possibilities and, you know, just, we, we always have to face head on the critique that really what, at the end of the day, this is a kind of technocratic um, project in which um, there's still those People that decide which indicators are the ones that count, uh, what, where, what is the most important feedback, and um, yeah, that, yeah, because it's it, it seems to pull in these radically different directions. Where if you read Stafford Beer talking about Cybersyn, you see this is great; it's going to be all about the people and Allende as well. And then these critiques saying, "Oh, it's so utterly uh, centralized, technocratic uh, kind of process." So, how do we navigate those pitfalls and those traps? This is a great question. <laughs> I think I should become a politician when I answer that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, this is, I mean, I think this is the thing we can't avoid, right? Ultimately. And I mean, the question I end up asking is, I'm going to go right on, uh, on the limb here and say, how far can these things even be taken within a capitalist framework? It depends on who takes the decisions. Um, now, this is incredibly hard, of course, to answer. Yes, I know I'm throwing you right you into the but, actually, you know. but let me let me try. Let me try. Um, well, I think there's there's many things that that have to be done. I mean, if you look at the very kind of you know very basic way of um, living in, let's say, an urban environment, since uh, we are really sort of there's a trend to to go towards living in urban environments rather than rural environments. Let's start with small things. Um, let's talk about infrastructure. I mean, like uh, mobility within a city. Um, once you're mobile, 
you do have the possibility to gain knowledge about where you live or who lives there. Uh, you also gain the possibility to go to work, um, to go to your, you know, places for leisure, um, you go out and so on. So the issue of mobility within a city is absolutely crucial for interaction between, well, the people in the city. So one of the suggestions I would have um, is let's have free mobility within urban spaces for everybody. Um, that on one hand is the public transport, uh, meaning um, uh, subways, uh, buses, and so on. But it could also be, well, let's, talk, let's call it also public transport. It could also be e-mobility that is free to share. So, because I think once you get people more, uh, once you give people more possibilities to interact with, um, well, their folks, um, it might be easier to gain trust. Do you know what I mean? I think it's, it's very much on, 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 on trust how things work. Um, because honestly, what we learn about participatory processes, um, I think we are pretty far away from, from participatory design process in urban environments to, to really be considered. Or even going back to participatory education systems, so, you know, that it starts, that we become inculcated in a participatory kind of culture as opposed to, uh, you know, we still so much of the sort of banking model of education where you sit there and the expert will deposit this expertise into you as opposed to the, as opposed to co-constructing knowledge together in a cons more constructivist kind of education. Absolutely. I mean, this is like the, um, so, you know, when I, when I talk to my students and I say, um, well, we are following one very important principle, uh, and that is called teach back. So I teach you, you teach me. Um, with designers and architects and art students, that works well. Uh, with students from project management or human resource um, management, it doesn't work at all because they do expect that the teacher or the professor tells them what is right and what is not right, uh, whereas the design-based students love it. And... By doing this, I realized that the outcomes of the studios that I'm running are a lot better and students remember much better than as if I would tell them what is right or wrong. So um, coming back to this mobility issue, if we start having more, let's call it interactive mobility and interaction, I suppose you can trigger by making it for free or actually paying it through tax, let's say that, um, we could have a bit of a better city in many instances. And it, it, uh, what I love, one of the many things I love about this book is that the, the, these, these debates, the, it, this does not lapse into a kind of just utopianism of this kind. I mean, every single chapter, I mean, I think for me, Raoul uh, Bunchat and the, your colleague, his chapter starts with the most sort of utopian notion of talking about the second skin of a city is a continuous city web spanning the earth, uh, a thin layer of dynamic processes and, and the feedback loops between built things, houses, streets, infrastructure, and, and the, way, the, the, the um, 
the city designer as a kind of curator um and and it's and it's a vision that I absolutely get very excited about and but even he says later the contemporary smart city is both an ideal of interactive hyper efficient intelligent support systems enhancing life etc but it can also be and he calls it a parasitic lair which preys upon its host or even a virus which becomes even more powerful a plague nearly impossible to evade and so when we teach the basics of urban design what do we teach is the great question that he asks and and you brought up this notion of trust right these kinds of processes seem to me to ultimately require a kind of um a kind of trust uh, undergirding them uh, that um, we can go into this kind of idea of a learning process rather than a master plan and that these feedback loops are going to allow something. I mean, I think I, in a sense, it goes right back to the definition of cybernetics. When Norbert Wiener put the word control in it, it people got afraid. Uh, and it's a different notion of control, right? And it's not about controlling others, but navigating a kind of stability that's right. And um, yeah, this is, I mean, this is great conversations that, uh, that Raul and, and I have. And uh, we do have this ongoing debate because um, he, um, he favors the term um, uh, conscious city. So not smart city, conscious city. Uh, the conscious city uh, also um, includes uh, the human being, uh, human feedback. Uh, as uh, as a driver for uh, learning for for the smart city, so only through through the human feedback, the um, the smart city becomes intelligent and conscious, uh, and and these networks between you know the the human network and and the let's call it a digital intelligent network can work together. Uh, and I, on the other hand, say, um, well, um, I think it's the unconscious city and not the conscious city uh, because we would like to have a city that also takes unconscious decisions rather than conscious decisions. So it's a bit of a terminology thing um, that, that we're dealing with. Um, but of course, uh, I mean, he, he hits the, the nail on the head by um, by sort of thriving these utopian ideas in a way. Um but again, you know, going back to the moments where electricity was discovered or um, he even, uh, you know, talks about um, uh, cyborgs and, and hyper-reality. So in, I think that when the chapters go, when you read the chapters together, like Raoul Bunshoten's chapter and, and my chapter, um, they, they talk about the same thing. Um, one is about the smart or conscious city, uh, and the other one is more about the uh, relationship between um, the human and the robotic. Uh, Raul is, is working on the urban scale, and, and I'm working on the architectural scale and on a cybernetic meta level. Um, so, yeah, and this is also the reason actually why we're working on this book series, because it kind of, you know, works together. This dialectic at the core of all of this is 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 really important, um, and I think it's is it I think it's Delphina van Dittmar's chapter where she's talking about you know she zeroes in on what some of the the issues to be grappled with around because obviously we're talking about things that are already here right the Internet of Things 
smart homes. You know, you know, my son got a Google mini for, for he's 11 years old and he desperately wanted a, a Google home, right. So that he can talk to Google and get it to do things for him. Yeah. And it's great. Um, but there's this idea that, um, she says, smart market often envisions the user's upgraded life under principles such as productivity, security, efficiency, optimization, convenience, and automation, which none of those are inherently bad things, but they tend to be a group of very sort of marketplace, market-driven, sort of capitalist efficiency um, kinds of things. And she then later on talks about shifting that um, into something that becomes more about possibility and creativity than necessarily simply efficiency and productivity. So, um, what's your what's your take on that um, that dichotomy? Um, I think this is this is totally logical in a way. I don't see a dichotomy here. Um, I would I would sort of go back to. Uh, to the times, you know, so the times of needlework, let's say that. Um, because basically, yes, you're absolutely right. This thing is market driven. Uh, there's, you know, a handful of people who, who earn an enormous amount of money by us using that. I mean, I just sort of renamed my robot Hoover to Henry because that gives me a more sort of, you know, close relationship to my Hoover. Um, totally crazy but um but what what happens here is on one hand it's market driven it's capitalist um you know it may also have issues of cyber security and um, data protection acts and things like that but on the other hand we do have an enormous amount of open source um platforms. We have GitHub, we have processing.org. Uh, in fact, we also have YouTube. Um, the microprocessors, um, controllers, um, all those things are relatively cheap, even a 3D printer. So what is happening here is I think that we are, on one hand, able to, of course, use Google and so on and pay with our data, but on the other hand, receive possibilities, and I think this is also what Delfina is talking about, receive the possibilities to be able to use those devices, to use those parts and kits of parts to enhance our lives in the way we want. It may not be our generation or, you know, the older generation or the kids who are like, you know, 27, but it may be the generation that has been born five years ago. I mean, like my, my very good friend, uh, she's a media architect and she teaches coding for girls, girls between six and 10. So these kids use code, open source, um, interconnectivity, the internet of things natively, a bit like, you know, we use, you know, our granddad's hammer or our grandma's, you know, needlework bits and pieces. So I think it gives us an enormous opportunity. I mean, you know, we can 3D print um, uh, prosthetics if we have to. I mean, physical prosthetics for, you know, arms or something else. And this is liberating. And of course, you pay with something, you know, nothing is for free. There's no free lunch, as they say. There's right? no free lunch. You know, even life, you pay with death. Or was the, the other way around? You pay death with life. Um, 
but I wouldn't be afraid of that. You know, it's it's a matter of attitude. And I think if you if you go through the world as a as a learning person, as somebody who's sort of curious and um, and aware that things are changing, um, it could be pretty good. You know, and if you think realistically, um, we have a, a we have a society that is getting increasingly old. Uh, like we've got more elderly people living at home by themselves um, than we used to have. And these technologies that are currently um, being developed also within architecture and, and, and we are working on intelligent building components, for instance, will hopefully be used in a positive way to help um, elderly, for instance, or uh, people who cannot move around their own home freely by themselves so i don't see i don't see an issue despite of all um cyber hacking and cyber criminality and ethical problems i think we are on a very good way actually and i would suggest and this is a way of bringing us to sort of as we draw to a close here you know going back to this idea of second order cybernetics because it seems that you know all of these things are are possible, but the word cybernetics doesn't always turn up and people, in fact, seldom does, right? That's why we're having this conversation and, you know, starting this channel, et cetera, is to, to continue to keep this, these disciplinary ideas alive, is that the guiding principles of second order cybernetics versus simply first order cybernetics, so that it's not just a matter of efficiency, but it's a reflective learning. It's a learning process and not just a, a master plan. So to take us to the end here, can you tell us a little bit, just sort of final words for this conversation about why the cybernetic perspective, the second order cybernetic perspective is at the core of this conversation and why it's important. And I'll just give you one more quote from, from Delphina, where she says, as opposed to the current linear directionality of algorithmic logic, second order cybernetics implies the extension of control as a mutual notion, since the controlling and the controlled elements of a system share a goal. So, what is the the most important thing about looking at this entire thing that's happening, you know, whether we like it or not, and you, you've given us a very, uh, I think, optimistic uh, uh, position on it, which I, which, I, uh, which I understand, but that this second order perspective is something that we need to, to keep in our minds and keep conscious of if we're going to have this continue to unfold in a way that is the most beneficial. Yes. Now, um Sort of to 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 conclude this um, this conversation on second order cybernetics uh, and learning, um, what has brought humankind to where we are now? Well, not just humankind. Let's say our whole you know spaceship Earth um, is difference. Um, we had we are different from our environment. Um, one person is different from another, uh, and through understanding our goals and the differences we have with others, we start working on moving forward. And I think those differences, which, well, understanding the differences, allow us to. Well, to sort of you know rub against each other and and to 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 understand who has which goal, and by understanding those those goals and the parameters that come with it, 
we have the possibilities and we need to take this possibility to to move and to follow our goal. And the nice thing with cybernetics is that on the way, you may realize that what you considered as your primary goal is not so relevant anymore. Um, so we talked about uh, we talked about uh, teaching earlier, and at one stage, um, pedagogy realized that it could be interesting if uh, the pupils or the students um, bring in their own ideas. Um, so the second order cybernetics, where we can address human complexity, as something that is difficult to understand, but that is necessary to take. Um, we go much further than just treating everything or everybody the same. And variety uh, gives us the opportunity to survive in many situations. So if we embrace complexity, if we embrace variety, if we embrace different opinions and attitudes and different goals, we have the opportunity to, to survive many different situations. Um, and, and this is going back to, to Ashby's law of requisite uh, variety, which he developed in Design for a Brain in, in the 1960s, um, which I highly recommend to read. So, yes, I think variety and complexity um, need to be understand, understood in order to thrive um, rather than to, uh, to stick or to stay in a sort of biological homeostat um, where everything is, is repetitive without reflection. That's great. That's a beautiful way to, to frame this as, a, as a, something that's not a project about streamlining and eliding difference, but in fact allowing that complexity to, to be uh, – that's what's going to make us robust and resilient – Beautiful. Thank you. So our, our traditional last question, and I know you're such a busy um, and uh, dedicated uh, uh, artist, practitioner, academic, that this could be another hour conversation. But what are you working on now? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which project do you well, want to hear? Um, tell us about Let the me... slime. Can we hear about the slime oh. or is that still too early? Uh, that may be a little bit too early, but um, it, it is within a larger framework and um, it also relates, of course, to cybernetics. Um, well, there is this, this uh, fusarum. This is what it's called. It's, it's an organism. Um, uh, it's a multicellular kind of membrane organism. Uh, and it's called slime mold. And, um, well, it was discovered a long time ago, uh, but it had been rediscovered in about 2000 in order to um, understand its intelligence. Um, it, it is part of um, what people are working on in the unconventional computing world uh, when it comes to biological computers. And it is something that uh, within architecture, 
a very small group of people are working on when it comes to also pattern making because this this creature it grows and it grows and it looks like the growing of branches of trees uh, and then it grows into another pattern which looks a little bit like the skin of a giraffe um, and it changes so it has a certain morphology in its in its patterning, um, which of course we are very interested in as as architects who are trying to envisage and design um, in a way biologically working buildings uh, and also biologically working urban organisms. So the larger subject would be how to actually learn from from intelligent uh, biological material and to implement this into into architecture um this is sort of the most kind of you know out there out there project um on a more domestic uh domestic uh paradigm uh, in TU Berlin, we are working on a building component uh, which has integrated intelligence, which also has um, um, material behavior so that it reacts to the sun, that it can collect fine dust, um, that it can also be prefabricated industrially. Uh, and that is sort of the, the down-to-earth um, building project that we are working together with uh, engineers and also Alto University and, and other partners. And that's an EU-funded project, and we are very grateful that we can combine um, some of the cybernetic issues with with building and start working on cyber-physical um, building components and the slime mold uh, is more um, a cyber biological physical component that is so exciting and and that work also goes right back to pask and ashby and others right who were all you know even in the in the earlier days of cybernetics this idea of biological computing and the, these learning organisms and 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 um you so overlapping with ideas of biomimicry, but it's a, about more than that. But this idea that their adaptive processes are something that could be valuable for us. Absolutely. I mean, um, the, whatever I'm working on, and I think this is the same with all cyberneticians working sort of in, let's call it the real world. Um, we have to be careful that when we talk to non-cyberneticians <laughs> that we don't use the word cybernetics um, because there's different connotations in, in different cultures, different countries and different disciplines. Uh, so we better don't use that. But um, you are absolutely right, um, especially the slime mold project and the biological computing uh, goes back to a very concrete um, project by Gordon Pask. Um, there's a beautiful article. It's called Growing an Ear. Uh, and it's about the biological computer that was used for, for musicolor. But, I mean, this is, a, this is a different sort of, you know, conversation. Um Yes, I have learned a lot from from you know studying those principles, um, not just from the 20th century, but much earlier, uh, the 19th century, about biology and 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 uh, biological organisms and environment, uh, the predecessors of well cybernetics in a way. So. Um, and it's super exciting, but as I said, there's also a danger to get lost into uh, in in all these things. Um, 
Well, I'm hoping this channel will do something to help lift the veil and make the world safe for the word cybernetics again. And and you're certainly playing a vital role in doing that. And uh, we've ended right where we began with Adam's meeting bits, right, in this uh, discussion of the slime mold. So thank you so much, Liz. We've been talking to Liz C. Werner from the Technical University of Berlin about her new book, uh, Conversations, Volume 1, Cybernetics, State of the Art. And it is available free online, right? Can you let us know uh, how we access that what's the uh we can add something in the show notes i think um you can actually it's free online uh this is something that tu berlin does and we are very grateful for that um well you can just basically google uh the book's name and 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 tu berlin uh you can also look into my my google scholar um profile it's in there but you can also uh order it in the in the us uh, we do have one channel that delivers to the us it's not tu berlin uh but they are called jpc.com i think um and you can order the the physical book if you if you would like to to have that and and touch it and feel it and you know put your markers in there but sure it's free online um that's also one of the sort of cybernetics attitudes that we are trying to share knowledge to receive feedback absolutely that's fantastic well thank you again so much i couldn't have imagined a better uh, more appropriate guest for our first edition of new books and systems and cybernetics and thank you so much for uh, talking with us and i'm sure we'll get another chance to talk again soon